Hey everybody, we are Martin, Robert, and Francis, and this is Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. Welcome to Snakes and Otters, episode 18. I'm Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. So fellas, for episode 18, I wanted to do another one of our famous reach back, not reach around. Reach totally different things. Yes, totally different things. New concepts. Um episodes here and when we did those episodes on the enlightenment when we talked about voltaire when we talked about franklin we mentioned a lot of people mm-hmm. but there was somebody we we mentioned that we kind of just glanced on and that man's james madison and as i started to reflect on that a little bit his wife is a great baker wait no sorry different no, she doesn't make donuts that's right Dad. uh as i started to reflect on that a little bit I started to feel like we we kind of missed something there. That I began to feel like Madison is the key figure of the American Enlightenment. So I wanted to hit that a little bit with you guys and get your thoughts on that. Um, Question. Yes. How so is he the key figure of the American Enlightenment as opposed to the people we've already talked about? So, would you like me to start with a little bit of bio? To explain this best. Okay. So, we're going to let me roll with this. Yeah. All right. Absolutely. So, here's where I I came to with Madison is, I think the key part here is, he's he's almost like a second generation patriot. Right. Mm -hmm. He's considerably younger. Right. Than many of the the other patriots. Uh, He's he's like forty years younger than Franklin. He doesn't finish college until 1771. Finishes in two years, but he doesn't finish till 1771. Franklin's already been a uh, a public figure for decades at that point. Um, also, not only is he younger than a lot of the other founders, he's somewhat unique in that he's a Virginian who doesn't go to William and Mary. He doesn't go to school in Virginia like the others. He goes to Princeton. Hmm. He goes to New Jersey. His health was thought to be somewhat fragile, and they wanted to get him out of kind of the swampiness of Virginia and, and send him to school in New Jersey. And the swampiness of Virginia for the swampiness of New Jersey. Okay. Okay. It's cooler, anyways. Yeah. So they, they, they felt like that was going to be better for him. And the pivotal piece here of Princeton and why it's important is a man named John Witherspoon. Witherspoon is a Presbyterian preacher straight from Scotland. Scotland. Because as we all know, if it's not Scottish, it's, it's crap. crap. That's crap. K-W-A-P. Quap. <laughs> but Witherspoon is a, this fascinating educator who also becomes a patriot mm-hmm. also serves in the Continental Congress but he is an educator of young patriots um, and very pivotal to the development of the ideas that feed then into the American Revolution which I gotta say I find fascinating for being a Presbyterian uh, Not I don't come from a Presbyterian background but 
the little bit I read about him uh, in prepping for this mm -hmm. would suggest he's very much a strict, what we call strict tulip Presbyterian, uh, which basically, you know, the whole total predestination kind of stuff. Very Calvinist. Very Calvinist, yes. It, Calvinist is very much uh, uh, talked about here. And it says he helped unify the Presbyterian Church in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So he's, you know, influential in a lot of different ways. Because um, when I think of Presbyterianism, I don't think of personal freedom. Because everything's already preordained, there's no freedom there. Yeah. So to me, this is a fascinating uh, dichotomy, using your words yes, from yeah, earlier dichotomy. episodes. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Now, Francis, you had looked into a little bit of Witherspoon's background as well. Mm -hmm. And the key to answering Robert's question here mm -hmm. is something called common sense realism. Right. It's a very big part of the Scottish philosophical milieu of the era. The, uh, the Scottish side is very common sense, very practical. That's probably more Scottish than it is Presbyterian. Uh, if you want to take it as a Scottish virtue, I think you're probably right on that. And, and it, basically it, what they're doing is they're taking the ideas of the Enlightenment that benefit the most people, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of expression, separation of church mm -hmm. and state, all those things that our ideas of the Enlightenment are basically practicalized, if you can use that word, in the Scottish school and is brought over into America where it's given to Madison. How much of that do you think is because of things like the Jacobites, mm -hmm. uh, basically the Scottish, being resentful of the rule of the British? Oh, absolutely. I think that's, that's very formational right there because that's one of the reasons that Witherspoon was such a great patriot. He didn't like. He had reason not to like the British crown uh, for many for many decades at this point, but mm -hmm. because Culloden was only twenty years earlier. Yep. So seventeen forty six. That's right. The, that generation is still around. So right. he was a young man. He was would have been in his early twenties. That's that right. Happened. So which was a watershed moment for uh, for anybody with a Scottish uh, uh, ancestry in, at the time. So finding a way to free yourself from oppression is very much in the Scottish vein. It's also in the Enlightenment vein. It's, it's universal good is what it's mm -hmm. looking for. And that's what it's done. And that's where the term common sense comes from. Uh, in fact, Thomas Paine supposedly took the name common sense from that movement for his pamphlet. Yeah. And there's, there's plenty of other philosophers tying into this. That's right. There, we talked about David Hume uh, Oh yeah. before. And, yes, and David Hume was... Uh, he's tied into it. He is. Uh, Thomas Reed was the, was the gentleman who was the actual guy who came up, with, came up with the term. Witherspoon actually just kind of used it and brought it over here. But Reed was an adversary of Hume's because Hume, it, it, there's kind of... He's very British in many ways. And the, this is very much kind of rejecting a lot of what that Hume philosophy was. Uh, Hume is very much a, uh, I guess you can say, a, uh, I don't want to say collaborator, that's not the right word, conformist. Mm -hmm. And this is not. This is very much, this, we've got to go beyond the way things have always been. You know what I find interesting about uh, Witherspoon, again, this is very quick research, don't know how deeply this plays out, but the fact that it's there in some of the research uh, is interesting. So our last episode, we talked about uh, Moore, Thomas Moore, and the primacy of conscience. 
Well, that was one of uh, the two sides of a debate that was raging in that Presbyterian movement, was the primacy of conscience, and uh, I'm looking for this, uh, others who fought for a communal focus on the enduring reality of universal laws. Kind of really forming into that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Calvinist, everything's preordained kind of thing, you know, because you know Calvinists we did very strict law-abiding rules are very important, and so he was very much that latter thing, you know. So it's kind of a, I would say, reverse Thomas More, but now we're looking at uh, that that concept from the other side. He was very much a, uh, you know, if it's universal laws, then there's not a uh, primacy of conscience. The two are no very yeah, opposed. Very much so, yes. So and again. I find that an interesting dichotomy because how does that fit in with a guy who helps form the revolutionaries? Yeah, uh, again, it's fascinating. All of that in his background, yet Weatherspoon comes here and shapes a generation mm -hmm. into American exceptionalism. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that term may not appear for a while yet, right, but the but seeds he, are there. He's, he's teaching... Men like Madison. And Madison was a sponge. He was oh, an yes. amazing he, intellectual. Yes, he's uh, a, a tremendous student. Again, he, he finishes Witherspoon's course of education at Princeton in two years. Yeah, I was going to say, we don't give Madison enough credit, I think, for his intellectualism. We see him as a patriot and a president, and it's because of his great intellectualism that he's able to give birth in many ways yeah. to the ideas and the documents that we right. revere so much today. And Witherspoon's the overshadowed. Guy by the other greats that yeah. come a little bit before well, him. Yeah, because they, obviously he's got to be an intellectual giant to be the father of the Constitution. That's right. He, he but he's not he's not a fighter. He's young, he's too young for that. I mean he's he's not he's he and Hamilton have different roles in the revolution yes. because they are a different you know, slightly different generation. Guys like Washington and Adams and even Jefferson, who's a little bit older, uh, they're the ones that and Franklin, they're the ones that bear a lot of that, uh, I guess you could say, they reputation. They intellectual water, so to They speak. did, yes, yeah. that's exactly right. Well, although, Hamilton, he was more, he was directly involved with the war more than, you know. Yeah, he was. He was more afterwards in the, uh, with uh, writing the, the Federalist Papers along with Madison. That's correct, yeah. The two of them um, were actually very, surprisingly, yes, they yes. got along very well considering the fact they were oppositional. Because Madison but the was, opposition doesn't really emerge until later. That's right. Uh, Madison is in opposition and wrote the papers together. Right. Yeah. But the, Madison later becomes a protege of Jefferson. Mm -hmm. He helps found yes. the Democratic Party uh, at uh, under Jefferson. It's the two of them together that make this happen, and he's the successor to Jefferson. Yes. It's, it's always yes. intended that way. Yes. It's, it's frick and frack. It's Laurel and Hardy, the two guys together. Yes. And Jefferson leaned on Madison a great deal. Because he's more intellectual than Jefferson was. And that's an astounding statement. Yeah, yeah. And they you think Jefferson pretty you think well. He's a yeah. He is. I think Jefferson's bigger picture, and Madison gets the details more so. Let me he's go good. back to something. Jefferson's good at the Declaration. Yeah. Madison's good at the Constitution. Yeah. If you see that as a difference. Yes, there. I see what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, that's jumping down the road a little bit because. Uh, just just to touch on it again, Madison is the, the fourth president. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a successful president, by and large. He does serve two terms. Two terms. Uh, he does embroil us in the War of 1812. Mm -hmm. um, that was almost inevitable, though. In, oh, yeah, there's almost uh, yeah. no way out of it. 
Yes so and it, no. It's it's you know when when it's called for the second American Revolution for a reason. Yeah. Uh, not just because we fought England a second time, but it was you know England was encroaching upon our sovereignty in the sense that you know the impressment of of English uh, American sailors. Yeah. That was part of it, but that's probably the most visible uh, aspect of that. I think that's a symptom of them trying to reassert dominance over the former colonies. Because mm-hmm. obviously, they were always more powerful than us uh, in, in, in absolute terms. Mm-hmm. And probably, you know, in this time period, they were feeling their oats, you know, thinking, hey, we are back on the rise. You know, this is, uh, you know, we're opposing uh, Napoleon. Now, they haven't had, you know, Waterloo is still a few years down the road, but I mean, they are not feeling like a weak power like they must have felt after the defeat. Well, also the continental system is in place in Europe at this point, yes. which is an enormous problem for them with regards to trade because they can't freely trade at almost any European port that Napoleon c- controls. Yeah. They have to have good trading partners, and they, they need control of the seas to do that. And that's one of the reasons why this was... So what shouldn't have happened... Right, but it was kind of inevitable because they saw us as their competition, Pain not as their customers. Yeah. Well, you know, if somebody punches you in the nose and, and steals half your house, which is probably how they looked at us, they're not going to look kindly upon us. No. England and the U.S. do not become friends quite some time. Quite some time. That's right. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't think the war was totally avoidable. All wars are avoidable. He got painted into a corner, but yeah, he wasn't quite ready either. There yeah. was there were some there were some things they. It was kind of a Jeffersonian thing, and and, and Madison as his protege, that the Navy. Kind of, in more of a riverine force, than an ocean. Well, force. I think one thing you're forgetting though too that contributed to this is Madison and Jefferson are enormous Francophiles. Yes, huge. They and and at this point, if you're basically if you were for France, you were against England. Yes, and their policy know, reflected that. I don't know that they were totally, you know, navies for the, you know, river aspect. Because you got to remember, Jefferson was president when we sent the navy not once, and I think not twice, but three times. Yes, to you're, the Mediterranean. Right, you're right, and that's a, a classic Tart. Jefferson in that. I'm sure. Phil- philosophically. He's. We don't have any business in the Mediterranean, let, you know. But practically, when he has the power, he yes. has to, he. Jeff, again, we you know two episodes, three episodes on Jefferson. Yeah, he's very as, much as a paradox and a, a yeah. dichotomy yeah. of his he thinking. Is a great example of that because he's very much you know small government, yet he buys the Louisiana Purchase. Yes, he, and then he sends the navy. To basically free up the Mediterranean. Yes, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Madison attacking. was his Secretary of State during yeah. all this yeah. too. Yes. So he's, uh, yes. Madison, so he's tied he's, up he's in all in, this. In, yeah. exactly. So uh, attacking Washington and attacking Hamilton for looking beyond the shores of America. And that's all he does. But that's <laughs> as soon as he's president, he does the same thing. Yeah. yeah. So, but I wanted to I want to circle back here a little bit because to me again that Madison. Is an exemplar is not an exemplar of the Enlightenment because of his presidency. It's because of that shepherding, that fathering of the, the Constitution. Constitution. Yeah. If you're not That's, familiar with it, he 
um, a great deal of the American Constitution is at his hand. That's right. He actually physically held the pen and wrote it. It's his language in most yeah. cases. Yeah, and, and not all concepts. Again, many, many people, Franklin among them, yes. Edmund Randolph, but uh, all he's these the one that articulated it. Yes, and it wrote contributes it out. into these these compromises that go into it. But he's also the, the person who stood up and said, we need to go ahead, get this passed, get it ratified without amendment. Because if we get bogged down in amendments, then every state's going to want their own. Yep. And he was able to be persuasive enough with the delegates at the Constitutional Convention to no. get that done with the promise of, okay, once it's ratified, we will then look back at amending it, and then the Bill of Rights is essentially his, period. Correct. You know, the Constitutional Convention, we, we probably need to read more on that, even if we don't do an episode on that. Because when you think about the personalities that were there, they mm -hmm. were all there. Whether we've talked about them or not. Because yep. anybody who wasn't killed in the revolution that was an important player in the founding of the country was pretty much there. Mm -hmm. And you had Washington there as the president of the convention, foreshadowing his presidency as right. you know, the, the... And lending it that weight. And lending it that weight. So, in many ways, if Madison is the father of the Constitution, Washington is the grandfather. In, yep. a, in that sense that he, yep. he got it out. He, now... You know, he and, wasn't and a disciple of Washington. Franklin's the great uncle. Yeah, the crazy <laughs> uncle. Yeah, the crazy uncle. Uh, but, you know, that, because he could not have done that without somebody like Washington's support either. You know, he had to have been able to talk a lot of big name people who probably wielded more influence than he did, even though a lot of this was it, finally expressed you're absolutely by him. Right. You're absolutely right. That, that's so amazing. That, uh, you know, whoosh, it's over our head. But right. can you imagine being younger than everybody in the room, essentially? Yeah. Even in 17... I mean, obviously he's a mature adult person in the 1780s. Right. But he would have been in his, what, early 40s? Mid-40s? He's much younger than, again, by this time Franklin's 80. Yeah. And yet he held, holds enough sway in the room to get it done, to then turn around... And not only get the convention to pass it, but working hand-in-hand hand with Hamilton, mm -hmm. who eventually comes to oppose. Who's a Washington disciple. So right. you've got the, all the yeah. factions working, all working together, together to write the Federalist Papers. Mm -hmm. Tons of it, tons of it is directly from Madison's hand. Right. Selling this concept. Exactly. But the Federalist Papers we think of as this great monolithic treatise. It's not. It's a series of pamphlets written. It's propaganda to try and get the delegates to pass the Constitution. And get the states propaganda. on board to ratify yes. once yeah. it's done. It's propaganda in the, in the best sense of the word. Well, correct. That's right. It's not meant to be majority. Um, it's, yeah. it's a persuasive, it's persuasive uh, argument. Yeah, persuasive right. writing. It is the it's 18th century crossfire. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the intellectuals, although not everyone who was on Crossfire was an intellectual. But they aren't opposed. They're working in concert. Well, but there were anti-federalists, though, who wrote as well. But they well, weren't yeah, he was articulate. Because he was writing against them. There was quite a few of them at the time that mm -hmm. were opposed to many of this thing. Much of, much of the Constitution 
is very radical to so many of them because ideas like the three branches of government, that's Madison. Checks and balances, that's all Madison. Well, he structured all that himself. And you have to remember that at this time, you would have said the United States are, mm -hmm. not the United States is. Right. Meaning it's 13, although by the time we're at this, it's 15, I think. No, it still would have been 13. It still, still would have been 13. Been 13. It's 15 they shortly need, after. They need 9 of 13 to ratify. So it's still the 13 colonies that all consider themselves separate states. But I mean states in the sense of nation states mm -hmm. that have come together. Yeah, working. Uh, it's hard for us to think about that. That, you know, Rhode Island would have considered itself a separate state <laughs> as Germany is a separate state from France. Yeah. Although Germany doesn't always think it's a separate state from France. So maybe that's not a good example. <laughs> well, um, and, and so when I, when, I, when I think through about the Bill of Rights, and the Federalist Papers, to me, you say the Bill of Rights has to be the peak document of the Enlightenment. Absolutely. All the things that yes. Voltaire wrote about and all the other pieces, it's all laid out there in an articulate, concise manner. It has, yes. And in, fi and in fact, it supersedes anything that came before it. Because it's so good and so much of a peak document, as you say, and maybe it's because we're Americans, but we remember that, but all the genesis that went into that, no, not so much. The interesting thing about, and I think what makes the Bill of Rights so radical, which again, goes with the Enlightenment, yep. is that it is the first time Law, because essentially it's law, it's the yeah. law of the land, mm -hmm. right? Right. Law was made <clears throat> by elites, because let's face it, they were the, the rich landowners yeah. or merchants. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. The functional aristocracy. It was the functional aristocracy. Well, maybe not the first time, because you make an argument that Magna Carta is similar, but only in a very vague way. Because, it was conceptually, but it didn't really have a lot of power. What, the, the difference is this. Well, it's not even about that. The Bill of Rights is the first time law was made protecting the people, the man on the street, mm -hmm. from the government. That's exactly Magna it. Carta was about protecting the rich right. from, from the, the government. government. Yeah, similar, so, but not... Similar, only in a very vague yes, way. It's right. a statement of baronial rights as opposed to personal rights. the king rights. that did not... You're absolutely right. did not extend to the average person. Right. The Bill of Rights... Every clause, every sentence, every statement is the, the right of the people. Being affirmed the people. over the government. The people. It is the, it is the law that is made full, uh, that makes full the declaration. Yes. And when, you know, when the Constitution says, we the people, mm -hmm. it's the Bill of Rights that guarantees we the people that is a truly radical concept mm -hmm. we don't we you know it's like everything you know we, we talked about church stuff before we take for granted the stuff that you know we believe because we've grown up in it you know we, we don't live in a time of martyrs because our faith in this country is safe same thing in our understanding of the government and the relationship of the people for the most part that you know 
that yes, the government is supposed to be beholden to the people. That is so radical in all of human history. Because even the Greek democracies were not that radical. Nope. They were, not, they were not universal by any means. Right. Well, not that the United States had was universal either. At the first, beginning, that's correct. But it made a promise to be well, it was right. far There was an yeah. ideal that it was working towards. It was the broad the broadness of the power base was larger than it had ever been before. Nobody ever had bothered yes. for universal white male suffrage. I would say, yes, you know, in our case, it's universal white male, but it's universal suffrage in the sense that, you know, no place women had a voice. Right. So anybody who had a vested interest, whether it's, you know, lowest person, lowest worker to the highest aristocrat, mm -hmm. we're talking men. And it's the first time everyone from the lowest to the highest had a voice. Well... Except yes. women and Well, I mean, but it was still slaves. land. You had to be landowner in order to be able to vote. Nope. Nope. That was pulled out. That's right. That was pulled That's out. Correct. That was pulled out. Now, that was, in practice, that was, that was tried a lot. Right. That was one of the compromises, again, that went into because it. Because that's very is, British. Is pulling that concept, yeah. and you don't have to own land. Um, so, yeah. That's very forward, uh, forward thinking. Yes. Because yes. Think and about that's it. Madison. He's very, that's an enlightenment concept yeah. of universal, yeah. meaning and, no exceptions. And, and you know, again, that... We get, we're 200 some years. We don't always look on these guys uh, favorably. Yes, Madison owned slaves. All the Virginian patriots did. But at the same time, they were very real geniuses. Mm -hmm. Yes. They, there's nice. never been a collection of men ever before or since like these patriots. That's correct. You might find some individuals. More, yeah. A Lincoln, yeah. You know, Churchill, that are extraordinary men, extraordinary leaders. But you're right; there has never been this kind of collection—a collection of men who saved the world. Well, yeah, but this, and because these guys did it, we're not talking about the Revolutionary War here. We're talking about an intellectual revolution, right? Right. Yes. That is very different. That finishes the job, like we talked about with Washington, <clears throat> and the diffusing of that rebellion. Yes. <laughs> And he's he rescues single-handedly the idea of a free nation. Ours is the, we've said it before. Ours is the only rebellion slash revolution that succeeded. And I say that because all the ones that we think of—the Russian Revolution, the French Revolution—they destroyed themselves. Yep. Now mm -hmm. it may take a little while. Maybe we destroy ourselves eventually. But not the generation that that, that yeah. gained its freedom. And, right. and you think that Washington, as as incredible as he is, as this least man of history that that stands out among so many, he's just one of quite a few that build this nation. This is not just you know two Madison or three. and dozens, and perhaps dozens. hundreds. Yes. When yes. you think about everybody that participated from the first Continental Congress. Up through the first several presidencies, because it took us, you know, to that War of yeah. Twelve, that Second American Revolution, yeah. Yeah. to solidify everything. And then you think about Madison in the middle of all that, as the guy that's putting down for all of posterity all of these ideas that he's able to he's able to siphon these things 
and give them uh, what's the right word? Got it. Form, shape, right? Life, life. Um, and again, we haven't even again talked too much about the presidency or, or any of the policy accomplishments afterwards. That's just guarding the legacy. In yeah, and that's down the she road. She became obsessed with, by the way, yes, at the end did. of his life. Uh, and rightfully so, because I think he actually started even altering some of his own correspondence yes, in later he years. He was oh, he was yeah. concerned about uh, finances. Right. Uh, he and he and the wife uh, did not have children. Right. Um, and that that's at that time that's part of your financial legacy too. Right. They're supposed to be taking care of you. Um, so he he became very obsessed with legacy and re-edited correspondence with Jefferson and all sorts of things but the 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 achievement is already there yes it's considered to be the most successful of all the founding fathers really? and I, yeah and I mean that's a relative term of course but uh, two-term president father of the Constitution uh, so much of uh, Secretary of State under Jefferson, uh, the Federalist Papers, all, all these things that, that he did, we, we give him a short shrift sometimes. Yeah. And I we should not. make an argument for him. I think, you know, I think the better argument is probably Washington because, not just because he was the first president, but because he led the country from, in war from the beginning, managed to keep it get together long enough to have that first presidential election and then set the standard for the presidency. Set the, setting the and oh, and, and oh, by the way, he also thwarted military dictatorship. Right. <laughs> I have. He forfeited a military dictatorship. He forfeited a, a hereditary monarchy being created for him. He thwarted uh, shooting people in the head. Yeah. Uh, because they. It's incredible that the loyalists were largely allowed to reintegrate, reintegrate, or, 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 or leave. leave. Yeah. There was. There's no. There was never a guillotine. And that is unprecedented in every type of situation. There was no firing French, squads. The, revolu the Russian Revolution, any of the British Civil Wars, um, Nazi Germany. If you dissented, you died. That's been the norm. Yeah. Dissent is an essential function of our country. Yeah. But your point about these men being the most astounding group of men ever to come together, think about it this way. Pick any period. I don't even mean just today, although especially today. Uh, whether I don't care which side of the, the aisle you're on. I mean, any yeah. politician today. Take any of our so-called statesmen from any era and ask them to put together the Constitution and the Declaration that the Founding Fathers did. How much trust do you have that they would come up with something even remotely similar? Yeah. Zero trust. Yeah. yeah. None no. of them. And, and, and Madison is, he's... The intellectual grounding of all that. Washington makes it practical and real. Yeah. Jefferson understands how to use the power of the presidency for the nation, but Madison's the intellectual foundation, and and that ties. Well, I think he's the intellectual foundation for putting it all to work because yes. obviously Jefferson, along with. Uh, Franklin and I forget the third guy that was with him that put the, the declaration together. You know, they laid out the principles yeah. that are really Adams. the bedrock. Who? Adams. Adams, Adams Jefferson, and Adams, Franklin Adams, are, are yes, the committee. Yes, Adams, yes. Those three giants. Oh my God. Yeah. And they laid, laid out the principles that if you look really 
everything that we aspire to be, whether expressed through the Constitution and how we govern ourselves, or just the philosophy of what it means to be American, is laid out there in yeah. that declaration. Mm -hmm. Especially in the all men are created equal. Mm -hmm. you know, and the life, liberty, and Endowed pursuit by the happiness. Creator. Endowed by the Creator. Yeah. Um, all those principles are the bedrock of what then Madison does in, in, in helping and guiding with the creation of the, the Constitution. The Constitution is what, some 7,000 words long? Right? Something like yep. that? 7,000 words? Well, brevity is the soul of wit. Yes. Seven the the think about owner's 7, manual words. for your car is probably 250 pages. Right. 7,000 words equates to something like 12 to 15 typewritten double-spaced pages. Yep. Think about that. The owner, entire, owner's manual for a nation. Yeah. Our entire government is based on 12 to 15 pages of typewritten, double-spaced text. That, that right there is unheard of. Yeah. Unheard of. Madison's Madison. genius. Our the entire judicial branch then. is based only on that. It has to either be there or not. Well, actually, in the judicial branch is even, when you think about how much of a role that plays today, its basis is such a small segment of those seven articles. Yeah, Article 3 is not very long at all. No, because the guts of the judiciary is, here's the Supreme Court. Congress can take care of the rest. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's essentially what it says. Yeah, it'll be separate, <laughs> and and Congress will, shall set up courts as it sees fit. Right. That's why Congress, you know, uh, interesting thing, you know, uh, President Trump was talking about taking uh, the Ninth District of the uh, ninth District Court. Ninth Circuit. Circuit, Circuit, yes, thank you. I knew you would correct me on that. Yes, Ninth Circuit. And dividing that for a couple of reasons. He wants to do it for political reasons, obviously. Yeah. It always seems the most liberal. Uh, but he wants to divide it. But also, it's also the largest. You could make a demographic case for mm. dividing it. Uh, it's already or, been divided once. Probably. They split yeah. off the, I think it's the 11th. Uh, so, you know, you could make a case for making that. But the reason and people say oh you can't do that judiciary is supposed to be separate no congress controls everything below the supreme court if congress wanted to abolish all the courts below the supreme court theoretically it could i'd be willing to bet the, ju the justices on the supreme court would say no you can't do that it's unconstitutional and they find some way to justify it which but the yes the, you're absolutely right the structure of what's called article three courts is completely up to congress yeah and so, well, guys, we're at about 35 minutes here. Wow. And, and here uh, we were wondering if we could get all that in. Uh, just amazing. Just amazing stuff that, and I wanted to tie that, you know, draw that line from Francis's Voltaire mm -hmm. Enlightenment stuff to the person we kind of glanced right over. In, in Madison. Yeah, he, well, he deserved his own episode. He absolutely sure. did. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so, so, we just, again, we just scratched surfaces here, talking about Witherspoon and, and, and Madison's education at Princeton and what he's being, uh, what's being incubated at Princeton with yeah. these young patriots and how Madison becomes that fulfillment of all those Enlightenment ideas and is able to put them in paper and make them forever. One thing I want, oh, I'm glad you said that word, because that 
what is forever? It's eternal, right? Yes. So I want to come back to what that means. You know, we, we've talked a little bit more in the last couple episodes about what that means, eternal questions. And, you know, it's yeah. part of our tagline, pointless discussions mm-hmm. of eternal questions. But you know what? The pointless part is tongue-in-cheek. Yes. It's, it's to give you, a, give you a little, you know, a little nudge. A little nudge. I think ultimately, even though we've not stated it probably expressively, even amongst ourselves, I think we inherently understand that the purpose of this is not just that we get together and have a bourbon together, although that is a really good That's reason. Probably, yeah, we'll interrupt. I, I, I'm hitting another glass of Makers Yeah, again Makers tonight. is where I'm at tonight. Yeah, and I'm still on my Woodford Reserve double oaked here, uh, which is some good stuff. We rarely drink different stuff here when That's we're with true. us. We, we're, we're usually, whatever we're drinking, we're all three drinking. So this is one of the few times that we've actually gone off the reservation a little bit. Yes. But it's all good. There's no it such is. thing as bad bourbon. That's right. Because as my former pastor said, even a bad bourbon is still bourbon. Amen. So, <clears throat> I think the, the unstated goal that we all understand is that hopefully, when you listen to this, you're entertained, but it piques your curiosity, or piques your intellect to think, hey, I should think some more about that, or I should go look that up, or these guys are full of crap, I'm going to go prove them wrong. I'm going to prove them wrong. I want to look up stuff about Moore and Madison. Yeah, or, or Voltaire. Or Voltaire, or whoever it is we end up talking about. Or whatever it is, we we've kind of discovered that you can put just about anything in front of the three of us, and we can give you thirty minutes on it. Thanks for being with us here every week at Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Be sure to spread the word on your social media accounts. Follow us and retweet us. We are on Instagram and on Twitter at Snakes and Otters. Let your friends know that they can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. Just search Snakes and Otters Podcast to find us. And please, remember to leave us your comments and reviews. It helps people find us. And you can always send us an email at snakesandotterspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Martin. I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Catch us next week. Same snake time, same otter channel. <laughs>